Ready graphics? Ready theme? Let me mother you. I just need to fix this. Fully believe that Murphy Brown scared the phone into ringing. I was like, oh, that's your closest to Murphy I've ever seen. He's learning, you know? Baby, come back. It is the clickbait of its time. Some bozo stole a plane. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode five, Miles' Big Adventure. Hello, and welcome to the vacation episode of the podcast. It's so well-timed because it's starting to feel like spring everywhere, yeah. which makes me want to go put a swimsuit on. Get your beads or your lays or your Hawaiian <laughs> shirts, but don't go to your Hawaii. Your striped Speedo. <laughs> you know, just do your thing. Enjoy this weather. A little oxide on your nose in 80s oh, fashion. I love it. I'm very excited to talk about this episode. We've been uh, kind of gabbing to each other for a while about this episode and how fun it is. So I'm very excited. Yeah, and if people haven't realized, the name of the episode is a takeoff on Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the 1985 film directed by Tim Burton and written classic. by... Their, oh, such a classic. Uh, mm -hmm. Written by Phil Hartman, which I think a lot of people don't realize. Paul Rubens, obviously. And Michael, I hope I say his name right, Varhol. Does that sound yeah, right? Yeah, Varhol. Yep. Okay, great. Uh, this episode was directed by Jesse. Oh, Barnett Kelman? And it's written by, we're finally back to some of the main on-staff writers. Yay! Mr. Norm Gunsenhauser and Mr. Tom Seeley. Some, some special favorites of ours. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it aired October 23rd, 1989. Yes. So, shall we jump into it? Let's jump into it. All right. So, we open on a, a montage opening that we do enjoy. It's a, a nice, classic, what I call the briefcase-style suitcase, which... So 80s. Oh my gosh, my dad had two of these that I'm pretty sure were from the 60s or 70s that lasted well into the 90s that he used for all of his trips and they would they never were destroyed. They're these they just looked like massive brown suitcases. Mm -hmm. The only reason he gave them up for new modern zip roller suitcases was because a an airport ran a forklift into it and punctured the side. Oh. That well, was the feel, only thing that destroyed them. <laughs> I feel like you told me this story, which is odd, Probably. unless I know someone else that happened to. I don't know why you would tell me that story, though, but that sounds it's really familiar. Awesome. <laughs> it makes me want one of those if they last for decades, and the only thing that can take them down is a forklift. <laughs> I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I think of it as, as a very 80s thing, but obviously, mm -hmm. like, of course, it must be from the 60s. It's something you just have. I mean, how often do you get a new suitcase? Exactly. So I watching this montage, there are a couple things to me that really stood out, which is that if you didn't read the episode title, like in, in the TV guide or anything like that, you just know it's Miles. You know, oh, yeah. looking at it, you I, I have this whole thing in my mind, my little headcanon that this is, you know, his inherited suitcase or something that like his parents bought for him when he was a young man. Like it is a like a classic that shows, you know, his kind of, you know, upbringing and uh, and his status, but also you're looking at the clothes that are being layered into it, and it's just like his pants, his shirts, his ties. I really want to fix his folds as a person. <laughs> I just can't quite take how loosely everything is folded, and those ties are just... I just want to roll them and fix them because they're... I, I love that that's your takeaway. You just want I, to help him pack better. Miles, <laughs> let me mother you. I just need to fix this. However, they don't last for long because as you're watching the hands lay these things down, all of a sudden he takes out the ties and the, the dress shirts and replaces them with some very pastel polo shirts. And I believe those are checkered shorts. 
And I have dot, 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 rum? Ithacock? <laughs> no. No, 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 no. Question mark? It's not rum. It's suntan lotion. You never had suntan lotion like that? Hello, I'm Irish, of course. Okay. Sun, but we had sunscreen. <laughs> ah. I never had suntan lotion. And so I wrote, I was like, rum? Ipecac? Oh, wait, it's suntan lotion, which I've never used in my life. We never tried wait, to get wait, tan in my Wait, wait, did you say Ipecac? Yes, because it's the old brown bottle. <laughs> no, I, I know what like, you mean. I jumped way back to like a different time period. That's hilarious. Just, like, you were in Little House on the Prairie. I was, you know, I just threw myself back. But I, it was, it's so funny to me to see people go on vacation and pack suntan oil or suntan lotion because for me, it was always just about block the rays and never try to get color because it's, it's just pain. It is just pain for me. So anyway, that's my sidebar about suntan lotion. Wear your SPF, everyone. Anyway, the suntan lotion goes on top and then some snorkel gear. So we're getting an idea of where Miles is headed to. And then a tie and a suit jacket. And I just wrote, seriously, if you didn't know it was Miles yet. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's such a great job of establishing character, which is what a lot of these openings do. You know, yes, it's like a fun way to start, but it's a little vignette that Mm -hmm. helps us ease our way into the story with a very little information, but important information. Well, and what I like is, and I'm assuming this uh, this body that they use is probably not Grant Shod for this opening montage. Oh, I think it is. Is it? Well, that's what I was wondering about, because the, the physicality is very real. And what I love is they trying to shut the suitcase, sitting down on it, and it's just Miles' khakis, his shirt, his tie, and the flip over the bed as the suitcase defeats him. It's just so Miles, but I guess I'm used to assuming that something like this that is a B-roll, they just wouldn't call the actor in for? Absolutely. I would assume, too. But, but I... The, yeah. Also, television, you know, it's quicker. And it just f- f- seems like him to me. I could be wrong. It, but it's, it's either just, a very talented body double who gets his energy or well done. <laughs> well done, Grant. You can act from your, you know, chest down very well. <laughs> However, we haven't talked about the song that's playing over this montage. So the song is, parenthesis, I'm a... Parenthesis closed. <laughs> Roadrunner by Junior Walker and the All Stars. It is on the 1966 album Roadrunner. Oh. Written by the team of Jesse. Holland Dozier Holland. This is a Motown classic on the Tamla Motown label, and it was a top 20 in the US and the UK. So the interesting thing about this, which is funny, is that Walker couldn't play the song in the same key that he could sing it. So the sax track was sped up to match. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And this song has been recorded by a lot of other people afterwards. Fleetwood Mac. I think that's how I know it. Oh, really? Okay, that's 1973. Mm-hmm. The Jerry Garcia Band, not to be confused with the Grateful Dead in 1975. Of course. James Taylor. Ooh. He sang in an episode of Saturday Night Live in 1976. Oh. Steve Gaines from Leonard Skinner. Yeah. performed it uh, with his own band and Pete Frampton in 1977. So either in concert or re-recorded, it became a very popular song. Wow, I did not know that this song was that prolific. Same. Go, Roadrunner. So we end our montage of Miles flipping backwards <laughs> over the bed. We cut to seeing the the suitcase now being walked through the halls, but not by Miles, by Murphy Brown herself in what is kind of a mint sweater dress type thing that's happening. I want it. It feels like a large tunic dress, 
we see her walking down and Miles is picking up the rear behind her. So at first I was like, wait, is Miles packing her suitcase? Until I remembered the name of the episode. So he comes around the corner chasing her. And what I wrote is while he helicopter parents saying, you have my number, you can call me. And Murphy's walking him to, straight toward the elevator from around the, when we're looking at the, the bullpen from the right side of the elevator, which we don't see a lot of motion coming from. And do we know what's back there? No, but we uh, we've seen them come through there a few times. That's also where the uh, mystery cigarette uh, machine That's what showed I up and then went I away. The machine was over there. Um, uh, they they tend to come from that area if they're coming from the back of the office at all mm-hmm. from there. But I don't think we've ever really established. I I think maybe maybe Corky's office is that way. I feel like she uh, comes from the left a lot. They do, but. Frank's office is from there. I don't know. I don't think it's ever really established, to be honest, I need where, what is back there. <laughs> so they're coming from back there. Who knows why the suitcase was back there, but they're coming from back there. Well, let's assume Miles's office is back there. How about exactly. That? I was like, it must be Miles's office. So what I like about Candace and the way she's playing Murphy at this moment, it's while Miles is helicopter parenting, very much being like, you have my number, you can call me, anything you need. She has such a like, ugh, Miles. And then gives him a you know great big get going. So we get the idea that Miles is struggling to leave. He says he's ready for this vacation. It's six days of fun and sun in Tobago and sees Frank and immediately launches into Frank about the deadline that he has to meet. <laughs> Murphy, my favorite thing about Murphy, she's, she spends this entire section trying to get Miles toward the shiny that is the elevator. So this is our first like, look, Miles, it's the elevator. And I think it's out of love. Oh, it's yeah. Not- they're just like, dude. <laughs> she knows he needs this. Oh, it's they even just about do. like getting him out of her hair. It's just like, oh, my God, if you don't go, you're going to be so unbearable. Well, what I love about Frank and Murphy in this section is that they're clearly urging him from a place of remembering when they had to take their first vacation and knowing what good it does them and seeing the fact that this guy has yet to find that ability to let go and how important that is. It's such a great generational dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Them being like, yes, you know, they're all clearly workaholics, but they also all know the value of needing to take a break. And he hasn't done it yet, which is something interesting for us to hear. Yeah. And he really doesn't want to go. I can only imagine that he he made these plans at like one in the morning one day after like just stressing oh. out so much. I'm just going to leave you all. You know, fine. Yeah. And then <laughs> immediately regretting it, but telling everyone he's fine with it and then mm-hmm. just not being able to follow through. Oh, yeah. But I love it because when she says, like, look, Miles, it's the elevator. She holds it open with her body, just trying to, like, be the siren song that gets him to go on his vacation. And while she does that in the background, Miles is standing there in the foreground just looking forlornly at the bullpen. (laughs) Just, like, (laughs) unable. He just, he has this almost, like, sad pout to him. And that's when Frank kind of steps in and coaches him, says, "I, you know, he knows it's his first vacation away from FYI. Says, you got to learn to loosen up, my man. And starts loosening and taking off Miles' tie and holds it in front of him and says the only thing that he needs to worry about is how he's going to fend off all those gorgeous island women. Which, oh, Miles. Uh, (laughs) Miles gets this kind of like sheepish, kind of like, Frank, you think I'm going there to meet women? And he he expresses he's not going there from that. It's a chance to re... And so he's turned and is facing Murphy, telling Murphy about, no, this is his chance to recharge as as a career man. And while he does that, an item falls out of some of the bags that he's holding. And while he's pontificating to Murphy, Frank picks it up. It's a lovely striped Speedo. And Frank begins, 
in pure Regaluto charm, starts clowning around with the Speedo. He's holding it in front of himself. He's holding it over his butt for the rest of the bullpen to see. Everyone's laughing quite outrageously. And this is the moment when I notice my new piece of swag that I want from the FYI newsroom, which is the FYI messenger bag that Miles is holding. It's got it's like this nice tan. It kind of looks like you, you could go on safari with it. And on two of the pockets in front of it is the FYI logo. It's pretty great. And I'm actually surprised I haven't seen Frank with that. Or I guess maybe maybe Miles is more into wearing the FYI logo than the rest of the people are. But the messenger bag is amazing and I want to yeah. wear it on safari. Well, they're really good about these small little details. The little mm-hmm. hats. Mm-hmm. Murphy at one point it has a rain jacket that is mm-hmm. orange has like a little yellow FYI on it. And mm-hmm. I-, I love little small things. Even in the revival, they have little FYI cups that were probably I left love- over. <laughs> While this is happening, Miles has no idea that everyone's clowning around behind him, that Frank is doing many uh, lovely pelvic gyrations with his Speedo. Finally, Frank from behind him says, well, it's a really good thing because I don't see any pockets on these. To which Murphy bursts out laughing. And then they start playing keep away from Miles like they're in the, on the schoolyard. Yeah. While Murphy grabs and says, well, it doesn't leave much to the imagination. And poor Miles is just standing between them back and forth, back and forth. I feel like this is a an activation for Miles. <laughs> seriously. And, seriously. And they finally end up on Frank's head. And Miles is able to retreat. Frank's the worst. He's the worst and the best. It's what I love is it's such a clear, friendly, familial hazing Absolutely. that they're doing in this. It's so it's clearly not cruel. It's so much fun. Everybody's in on it. Even Miles has a bit of a smirk on his face. It's just it's such a nice place to see them. Yeah. And if we can say that bathing suit was rather in. Very in. The 80s. in. Yeah. It's Very not, in. not that big of a stretch for Miles to no, be wearing I, it. But I think that's why it's like, oh my gosh, look at him. He's not wearing his dad's outfit. He's wearing a young man's speedo. Speaking of young men, at this moment, Jim arrives. <laughs> <laughs> what I love is he walks in with his, you know, serious Miles, I want to know the meaning of this, holds out a memo. Murphy's like, Miles was just about to leave. Bye, Miles. And starts to make her way toward the elevator. Miles explains it's just a memo about the sponsors meeting, which Jim shares is the third memo this morning. To which Miles says he was just trying to make sure his desk was clear. He starts to leave. We think he might actually be going. And then he turns himself back around to hound Jim on multiple things until finally my beloved Jim just goes, get out, damn it. Murphy, make him go. I'm sick of him. And basically just pouts and runs toward Murphy's office. You know, it's funny. This episode lands with me so much differently um, as an adult. Mm Mm-hmm. As a kid, I have to say it wasn't one of my favorite episodes. I'm not as familiar with this one. Although mm-hmm. also it's before I started watching the show, so I only knew it in reruns. Yeah. But I like it so much better now because it's, one, it's very different. The structure of it is so different than an episode. It's got really good drama. It reminds me of things that have happened on the West Wing. It's mm-hmm. such a great balance of what the show does really well oh, and still being very yeah. different. Mm-hmm. But I also wonder if subconsciously I was confused because I couldn't believe that Miles wanted to go on vacation. Exactly. No, there is that thing until you get to the point where you're like, oh, rest is necessary. I think it's just as you get older, you suddenly realize how it's that thing of when you're a kid, you don't want to nap. But when you get Mm -hmm. older, all you want is time in your day to nap. It's just until you're old enough to realize how valuable a a vacation is. You don't you don't understand why this is such a big deal. He obviously doesn't want to go. No, don't make (laughs) him. Uh, (laughs) We don't realize how it's going to affect his performance. So Murphy finally is exasperated, says, Miles, do we have to fax you there? Which, you know, in a Willy Wonka style could work. He's about to leave. He's actually making his way. And Corky arrives with, Miles, I'm, am I glad I caught you? My favorite thing is, it has nothing to do with work. It's She has her list of duty-free items she needs him to get in, a, in order of importance. But if you give yourself enough time at the airport, you should be able to get everything. 
When I saw this the first time, I was probably like 14, and I was so confused. I didn't know what duty-free was. Oh, really? You can imagine what I thought. I had no clue. I I think because we traveled a lot because of my dad's job, I knew duty-free pretty well. I was always fascinated by it. I am now. I was like, ooh, look at all these fancy things you can get. For me, I always thought duty-free was just for like lots of liquor. Because I just saw big bottles of like Glenfiddich. <laughs> when I was in the UK, it was just like giant bags of candy. Yes. It really depends on where you're going. Yeah. <laughs> so she says, you know, it's listen in order of importance. The most important thing is her Shalimar perfume, not cologne, not toilet water. They might try to sell you the box of little perfumes. I don't want that. If you get that, I'm not paying for it. Which this is the thing that finally sends Miles flying. He takes off to the elevator. He goes, got to go. Okay. And he does this like, I can't call it a breakfast club fist because it's fist straight out at a diagonal. Uh It's clearly Miles trying to do something akin to a breakfast club, but he just doesn't. It's not him. So he says, see you on show night. Marv, Marv, I'm counting on you. Bobby, you've got the new graphics. Frank, and they literally throw him in the elevator and shut the door. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I think of Shalimar as sort of a very 70s posh kind Mm -hmm. of a thing, but it actually started in 1921. Oh, I guess that makes sense. Right? Yeah. I mean, obviously something has to become a classic. It's one of those names that I recognize the name. I could not, if you put it non-labeled, with a bunch of other yeah, I have no idea what it I wouldn't like. know which one yeah. it was. And if you if you look it up, the references in pop culture are just like pages and pages. Oh yeah, I think that's why I know it because it was just always mentioned, exactly. but I never saw one. Yeah. <laughs> so we cut to the bullpen. It's about probably about a week later. Are we guessing? Which we find out throughout the episode, right? Yeah. Miles is about yeah, to come back, and we because he's going for six days. So we open on secretary number twenty four, guys. Oh. She could care less. She does not want to do her job. She has a great sort of nasal, oh, why am I here kind of a voice. And the other person on the other end just wants so much from her. They want her to take a message. It's funny to me because that description of vocal quality is something that I think is now attributed to young people. Oh, interesting. You know, this idea of like the vocal fry and the lazy millennial, which I have plenty of issues with that concept. But it is interesting that this is a mature secretary who has that like her life has just beaten her down. And her clothes look like they're from about 1979. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she uh, she hasn't changed uh, her clothes since her last job. Too much work. Which we'll go into. (laughs) So now she's now she has to find a pen. Oh, what is she going to do? And then Murphy comes up and asks if she had any calls. Oh, did she have any calls all day? All anybody does is call. (laughs) I love her. (laughs) It's so funny. As you're talking that way, I just assume it's a younger woman. It's so interesting. I mean, I'm not doing what we've done. I'm also not doing her justice. Like, we'll go into this actress a little bit later, but she is a voiceover actor. She's been in all the Disney cartoons that you grew up on. Mm-hmm. There's just I can't even replicate what she's doing. It's so it's so much better. No, but I I just think it's interesting that yeah the the way that perception has shifted. Absolutely, that's a really mm-hmm. good point. I'm really glad that you. I would never have put that together. Miles has called 27 times. Oh, that's buddy. when Murphy says that he's been gone for six days. Now she's the one that needs a vacation because Miles has been calling so much. Murphy promises, well, at least Miles is coming back today, and it will ease the burden of her workload because oh, the secretary <laughs> is such a big workload. I mean, I feel like in if you were an efficient secretary for Murphy Brown, it would be a huge workload. Unfortunately, this woman isn't even doing the bare minimum and thinks that's a huge workload. Yeah, and, and Murphy's still taking it, I guess, because she's so desperate for a secretary. The secretary says that she quit her last job because she couldn't stand the pace. Murphy asks, well, what was your last job? And she goes, 18 years at the DMV. 
DMV joke. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. No, no. Then she just stares at the blinking phone and goes, blink all you want, jerk face. I'm on a break. And then walks away. It's my favorite one line from this episode. Blink all you want, jerk face. I'm on a break. (laughs) Murphy just can't believe it. So she picks up the phone and pretends to be her own assistant in a fabulous French accent. And I love when Candace does a French accent as her go-to yes. because oh, yeah. it's such a meta thing if you think about it because mm-hmm. uh, her first husband, who she was married to at the time that she filmed this, Louis Maul, obviously she does a French accent very well. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that little sort of wink. And as she's uh, talking to the person as Murphy's fake secretary, Frank runs in and demands she gets off the phone. And I love sort of this back and forth between them because it's Mm -hmm. very much, well, it's very real. Get off the phone, get off the phone, get off the phone. No, what, what? I get uh, being irritated, but trusting Frank enough. Finally, she tells the person on the phone that Murphy is at the cheese shop. (laughs) She'll call you back. I will not attempt a French accent. It is the one accent I cannot do. I'm terrible at it. And Frank, now this I love, we get some background on Frank. Frank apparently Mm -hmm. worked in the press pool at the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing maybe in between working the beat in New York to do his Pulitzer Prize nominated piece. Mm -hmm. That might be why he was in D.C. to go interview. That's interesting. So Frank says that he found out that an American fighter pilot stole a plane for, you know, on Mach 1. And, and Murphy doesn't think that this is big news, you know, no big deal. But Frank says, no, the plane has nuclear warheads and this pilot has no intention on bringing them back. Frank does not have confirmation, but he's working on it. And then there's this whole great sort of what you think journalism is. Jim comes in, I wrote, ready for business. Now, Jesse, do you have uh, what oh, he do said? do I have my Jim quote? Yes, I will be Murphy if you want. Yes. Okay, go ahead. Murphy, Frank, I just heard something. I don't want to talk out of school. Nothing's been confirmed yet. We can't jump the gun on merely hearsay and rumor. Jim, get to the point. Some bozo stole a plane, and he's threatening to blow up the nuclear missiles on board. Okay, I just did Jim. I don't know why. <laughs> I did Murphy as Jim. Because he is just infectiously wonderful. Yeah. Some bozo stole a plane. I love it. I love it. And Murphy says, well, they can't detonate without a code. Jim says they have the code. Again, this sort of back and forth journalism at its best. Jim says they need a team to get on this and see how the fail-safes broke down. Office worker Scott, and I call him that just because that's how he's quoted in IMDb. Office worker Scott. Jumps in. Uh, you're never going to believe what he found on the wire. Frank goes, we know. Scott, what should we do? And I wrote, ooh, business. <laughs> ooh, business. I do have to say this, especially the, the next few sections of this, but mm-hmm. makes me really excited. When you talked about how Frank and Murphy talking, how it's like action, like go time. Mm-hmm. I love seeing this new side of the FYI bullpen yeah. that is super like... This is legit. Mm -hmm. And like one of my favorite things is about to happen is when they're like, Jim, it's your call. And like the way he snaps into actual reporter, newscaster, journalist mode, it's really cool to see. Like people are really on it. You actually believe that these people are efficient and capable. Mm -hmm. And now I believe that Miles left Jim in charge, right? Oh, it makes sense that he would be in charge. But we also have to remember is that Jim is the head anchor. Exactly. Or the senior anchor, I should say. So senior anchor. He's the one with the most experience. Yeah, he's the one who's going to have the call. Mm -hmm. And I I believe that they would leave it to him when it comes to a show because he's done this for so long. Yeah, but I I, I think also it's just the way the hierarchy is. That's that's Mm -hmm. the way things are done. Senior anchor. But I, I... thought that Miles told Jim he was in charge. Maybe that was from a, another cut or something. Anyway, so Jim goes for it. He says they're going to scrap today's show and go live with this tonight. I love that it's scrap tonight's show. Pull as many people as we need. Let's go live with this tonight. Yeah. And it's like you can see the way everyone looks at him is with this like awe and complete trust. 
it's such a cool moment from everybody to show the the gravity and history of Jim. Absolutely. It's such a great cohesive group working together. And then, of course, Miles calls, which Murphy is just done with. And she goes, oh, Miles, reach out and touch somebody else, which for <laughs> anyone who doesn't know is an AT&T reach out. And I love it. Yeah, is from AT&T. Oh, Miles. So we cut to Miles on hold. He is in a small We'll find out later how he describes this airport, but in a small airport in Tobago, he is in full vacation gear. There is the zinc oxide on his nose. He has what I call Mardi Gras beads, but definitely celebratory beads, several layers of them. He has a tropical shirt. It's currency, Jesse. He's got currency. He's got currency. As he's standing there, a very familiar voice appears. And a very familiar face. So it was something I was telling Lauren. It's very interesting that I am not used to seeing this face and hearing this voice together. Many people as much aren't. as I am separately. Mm-hmm. So what we hear is, and I'm not even going to try and do her voice because this actress is a genius and iconic and I'm not even going to try it. But what she says is, you know what I was thinking, Miles? What are the chances that of all the people stuck in the world that you and I would be paired in the sing-along and now here we were both of us stuck in the Tobago airport? You know, when you say that I want to lift my shoulders and just smile large like her. The way that she just like lifts her chin, the way she just like chews on this imagery, it makes me so happy. And what I wrote is it reminds me a lot of Megan Follows as Anne of Green Gables in the beloved miniseries that I have talked about that stars our, our wonderful Avery Brown, Marilla Cuthbert, Colleen Dewhurst. But there's this very youthful, dreamy quality of the things that she is saying that just, oh, bless her heart. Should we talk about who this is so everyone knows? Yes. So this is Lisa Simpson, yeah, aka Yardley Smith. Love her. She's fantastic. And for those of us who grew up in the 80s, her face is actually a big staple of a lot of things that you may not even realize. Here's what's interesting. Because of her voice and of her size, she played a lot of teenagers when she was not a teenager. She -hmm. played a lot of young kids. She is adorable. She was made fun of because of her voice when she was younger. So ha ha to them. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember a film called The Legend of Billie Jean, Jesse? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So for those who don't know, The Legend of Billie Jean, where she plays a teenager, she gets her period in it, guys. That's how young she is in this film. But she had already graduated college. She was so she was young, but she was not that young. But the great thing about The Legend of Billie Jean is that it's a very feminist piece. It's about a woman who has attempted rape on her and then she has to run off because no, she thinks that no one's going to believe her and she becomes a folk hero. I don't want to talk too much about it and take away from mm-hmm. Yardley. In fact, I think her, her Twitter is like Lisa Simpson and those cult films you know me from. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think I want to talk a little bit about her non-Simpsons life because I think that people mostly just know her from that. Mm-hmm. So she was born in Paris to American parents. Her father was a, a, co- a foreign correspondent for the United Press uh, International. She was born July 3rd. And Yardley is not her, her birth name. Her birth name is Martha Maria Yardley Smith. But her sure. father was Joseph Yardley Smith. So I wonder if Yardley is maybe a family name, perhaps? It makes sense that mm-hmm. it's a family name. Yeah. And when she was two, they moved to Washington, D.C., uh, where her father was the Washington Post's first official obituary editor. Mm-hmm. from 1977 to 1988, and then he did work for the Washington Post until 1996. So she has journalists in her background, which is great. And something really interesting is that her her big sort of break was understudying Cynthia Nixon in Tom Stoppard's The Real Thing. Is that cool? Yeah, and many people may know that Cynthia Nixon is famous at that time because 
She was doing two shows at the same time, Hurley Burley and The Real Thing in two different theaters on Broadway. She was doing The Real Thing and then she would go and and be in another act of Hurley Burley. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. So I can imagine that Yardley was probably... Uh, there a lot waiting in case maybe she didn't make it through Schubert Alley. (laughs) That's like the ultimate understudy gig. Seriously. You really could go on every night. And eventually she did when Cynthia left the show. And then, of course, people may not know, but The Simpsons was a short on the Tracy Ullman show in 1987. Mm -hmm. And then in 89 became a full-fledged series. So this wasn't really a big deal. It was a little small little voiceover gig on another show. And many people also may know her from Herman's Head, which was a TV series in 1991. And then also doing this research, I was remembering a show called Brothers on Showtime that I used to watch from 1984. Oh, yeah. You, you know about Brothers? Uh, very vaguely. I do remember. Yeah. Because what I had not realized is that it's one of the few early shows to have a gay character. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. we, have, we have Soap which was a little bit earlier, but this is 1984 and it's about three brothers in which one brother calls off his wedding and says to his family is because he's gay. But side note, Yardley has a podcast as well called Small Town Dicks, (laughs) which is detective stories from small towns. Also, if you follow her on social media, she has something called Simpson Sundays. Oh yeah, Yeah. I've seen that, yes. She's been giving things away lately. Uh, I just saw her buy these uh, donut-shaped Simpsons-oriented bath bombs, and then she <laughs> put them in water, and then a little Lisa Simpson came out. It was, it was just I love it. It's great. It just shows how generous she is. And in every interview that I've read, she she loves Lisa, and she feels so fortunate to be able to do this. She's like a really cool person. Uh, oh, also quickly, I should say Herman's head. Mm-hmm for those who don't know, was a sitcom about all the little people in your head before the Pixar film, guys. And that was on Fox. It's so funny that 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 concept was already out there because I know so many, I feel like every few years we get a a play or a TV show or a movie like Inside Out that that deals with that concept. Uh, There's even a video game I love that does that. And it's so interesting to look back at the different ways that different decades have dealt with the concept of what's going on inside your head. Uh, mm. So another thing about Yardley Smith that I, not to make it about The Simpsons, because if you want to know about The Simpsons, there are plenty of podcasts for you on that one. But I do love the fact that she is the longest running role to date, because she's been around the entire time since it started. And also, guys, go to her IMDb, because, and I'm sure she's sick of being called cute, because that's been her entire life and she's her brand. adorable. She as a mature woman is one of the cutest things I've ever seen in my life. There, I'm going to put a picture on the website. It's her smiling with this like nose and eye crinkle that just I just want to hug her forever. I love her so much. And it reminds me of how much I loved her in uh, her role in one of my favorite movies, City Slickers. Yes, she's great in City Slickers. She's so good. And now I have to go rewatch that movie because it makes me so happy. Yeah, she just seems like she seems fun. I mean, and to play an eight year old for so long, I think you gotta be fun. I think you gotta be fun. I think you have to have a sense of humor about yourself. And I feel like she's probably the person who has been called cute her entire life who now doesn't begrudge people for it because she's accepted who and what she is. Like, go her. So back to Miles with Dear Yardley. We we don't know her character name yet. We will find out it's Phoebe. But at this point, she's just the random woman in Tobago with him who got paired with him in a sing-along. So Miles spends the entire time staring at her with this mix of just confusion and pain. He's standing there on the phone. He's been put on hold and, he, and he's muttering, 
kind of to Phoebe, kind of to himself, that he can't believe this. We've sent men to the moon, but the stupid airline can't get him to Washington on time for broadcast. Clearly, at this point, Miles just thinks the only disaster is that he can't be there for the show. Mm -hmm. No one's clued him in yet. And she's just standing there staring at him with these love eyes, Mm -hmm. saying... She finds his work fascinating because, you know, her ex-boyfriend, Neil, was in sales. She thinks sales attracts passive-aggressive people. He was manipulative. And then she looks at Miles and goes, not like you. <laughs> I'm, I'm so team Phoebe. <laughs> I think she's the best. And Same. Miles just kind of stares at her. I ship it. Hmm? I said I ship it. Oh, I ship them so hard. Miles just kind of stares at her, turns back to the phone. Of course, he's at a little phone bank, so she can just walk around to the other side, just unknowing of his shutdown. And she says, you know, Rochester isn't far from Washington. She went there once, her senior year of high school, but she hasn't gone back because she hasn't had a reason to. And she does this like breathy ending to the way she's speaking. That is, she's just swooning so hard for Miles. And Miles does not know what to do with this. <laughs> I swear, he's in pain. As this is happening, we go back to the bullpen and see the madness that has occurred since he was put on hold. There are papers everywhere. Murphy's specs are on. Frank is kind of sitting on the the table that's in the coffee area that is now covered in files and things. And he's on the phone, clearly very serious. And Jim is in charge. I love it so much. I want to go back and rewatch Anchors Away and remind all of them of who this man is when he's having this panic about being replaced because that is Jim effing Dial and he is in charge. Team Jim. Uh, so Murphy's asking him a question. He says he's had situations like this before. The Pentagon, they pull their wagons in a circle. There, it's going to be hours before they get one piece of the puzzle. Frank is looking very frustrated. And you, you know from this information we got earlier that Frank's like the one on the phone with the Pentagon yeah. trying to get something. And then Corky arrives. And I was like, ooh, new outfit, Corky. She's got the power red. It's this kind of boat neck long sleeve shirt with like a black. It's kind of a houndstooth, kind of a something pattern to it. Her hair is down. And which I'm not used to seeing at work. It's very like fabulous 80s down and blonde. And I remember as she walked in, be like, wow, Corky, we got spruced up for the, you know, the bullpen. She launches into this information, which was at 1117 Eastern Daylight Time, Air Force pilot Major Glenn Dixon took off in an F-15 Eagle from McDill Air Force Base. At 1147, he veered off course over Venezuela. He radioed in that unless his estranged wife, one Bonnie Dixon, reconciles with him, he's going to detonate the nuclear devices on the jet. And she just launches into this information and everyone's just like, whoa, Corky, Corky. And Murphy's like, nice job. Who's your source? And then I wrote, that's why the hair. (laughs) (laughs) And she says, I just had lunch with a congressional aide. He told me everything. And then she leans into Murphy and goes, he wants to get to first base. Like he has a prayer. And saunters off to huge applause. (laughs) First base. I love that she's so... So young and and un, untouched, and I mean that figuratively, not literally, that she doesn't yeah. get that he wants more than just to kiss her. <laughs> I love it so much because there's this mix of this like purity and naivete with yeah. her knowing exactly what men want of her and using it. And the, you can tell the audience is like, yes, Corky. I relate. It's the best. <laughs> I was so proud of her. I'm like, get it. I'm, and the next time we see her, her hair is back. So like, girl went to work. So... Then we get to Frank. He's, you know, trying to get something through the phone. He's, is it Marv he's talking to? Oh, uh, I believe so. Yes. I think so. He's saying that the Pentagon rep's voice is cracking. It's as good as a confirmation. At that moment, while all this bustle is happening, Murphy remembers that Miles is on hold. 
<laughs> which I really want to know how much time has passed because <laughs> it feels like it was longer than just the scene we saw in Tobago. <laughs> Poor Miles has just been standing there. We cut to Miles as she picks up the phone to check in on him. He's practically in tears. He says his plane has been delayed. He's going to miss the broadcast. You can hear this like, don't be mad at me. He feels like he's failed. He says this is a disaster. He was this close to going to Cancun, but no, he had to save 50 bucks, which I love that Miles is vacationing on a budget. Also, I really wonder if that is how much a difference is nowadays, but probably not. <laughs> Miles starts getting filled in by Murphy and she's telling him everything that's going on. His face is like just collapsing with shock as he's hearing what's going on and that he's missing it. This entire time, Phoebe is behind him, looking over to people behind him and tapping his shoulder while waving. And you kind of get a shot of who it is, but not really. And then finally, as he gets the last of the information, he goes, oh, geez, and turns around in response to Yardley as a photog in the airport takes a lovely picture of the two of them as a couple, which <laughs> I really hope Phoebe got. <laughs> I really hope she bought that picture. <laughs> and he turns back around says the, it's the biggest story of the year, and he's stuck in a hot, sweaty little airport watching luggage spin. I feel like I've said something along those lines in my life. Yeah, you said that with um, a great deal of experience, Jesse. Miles, Miles is speaking my language right now. <laughs> I'm feeling him. He's standing there lamenting. That's when Phoebe decides to swoop in and add more cream to his nose, to which he just, as she walks away, goes, I'm in hell. <laughs> She's so cute, and when, Miles. Settle down. Have some little Phoebe kids. Phoebe Come on, Phoebe wants to put cream on your nose. This is my favorite version of Miles in this episode when he just gets indignant and he turns around and he looks out at the jetway and he says, let me tell you this, I better get double mileage on my frequent flyer account because they do not know who they're dealing with. And I was like, oh, that's your closest to Murphy I've ever seen, Miles. He's learning, you know, he's picking he up on some things. And then he notices something out the window. So he hands the phone to Phoebe and says, do not hang up and goes to the window we lose sight of him and watch Phoebe, Phoebe Kramer, we find out, finding out that she's actually talking to the real Murphy Brown. I love you, Murphy. And starts gabbing endlessly about how she once saw her wear this, I think, burgundy blazer. I, I think it was burgundy. That's a color I see. I just don't remember if that was the word. But she said she had just had to go out and buy it. And she starts gabbing about buying the same blazer. And do the buttons fall off for you as well? And just nonstop patter to Murphy until Miles comes sprinting back to the phone and says, what was the plane that was stolen? And he's looking out the window and he's looking at the phone. He's looking out the window. He says, Other, unless there's an air show. So we cut to some time later in the bullpen. Murphy asked her secretary to photocopy an article on the F-15, transcribe these tapes, pick up that fax from the airport base. This is the worst thing that could be possibly asked of this secretary. She <laughs> slowly, begrudgingly makes her way across the bullpen floor and she gets a rock out of her shoe. I know. I love she just sort of stops. She finds a pebble in her shoe. Oh, God. She's the worst. Puts the shoe back on and then sort of goes off. Everyone can't help but just stare. Uh, but they get back because everyone is bustling. We hear the sound of news at work. In fact, I think it's probably the sound effect from our opening. <laughs> Yeah, so we got phones ringing and noise and newsroom hubbub. Phil arrives with boxes of sandwiches. It's egg salad. Everyone groans. But Phil really scolds them that if they want 30 sandwiches in 30 minutes, they're going to get whatever he wants to give Hell them. Yeah. But he has sliced the pickle, and he does not do that for everybody. He's a good man. Yeah, and then we get some really cool exposition, which is great. Phil says, you know, they must be so proud of themselves. The nightline people are downstairs crying in their beers. Murphy says they lucked out, you know, that Miles is on the island. They have an hour of airtime. Um, now they have to just make it work. 
Uh, Murphy answers the phone. It's Miles. What I think is great is that uh, Murphy has food in her mouth. Mm-hmm. It's not going to stop. You know, everyone's got stuff to do. And Miles says they've evacuated the island except for a few guards and some tanks and him and a lunatic with an H-bomb. <laughs> of all the things to happen to Miles, being on an island with nuclear weapons is probably not the best thing for his sanity. Not really the no, best No, not so great. And Murphy offers him, which, you know, is sort of a little bit called back to season one. You know, she gives him an easy out. He yeah. doesn't have to do this. This is hard for even a seasoned reporter. He doesn't have to be a hero. He can leave. Mm-hmm. But Miles knows that it's a once-in-a-lifetime situation, even though Frank is telling Murphy not to tell him to not do it. You know, everyone mm-hmm. seems to not have Miles as, I think, uh, as a person, well, quirky a little bit. But Murphy is really the only one, I think, who's really taking this seriously and, and letting him be himself, but also giving him the options. Frank and yeah. Jim just want the story, and they, they kind of want to push him beyond his limits. Murphy wants to be sure that she's not pushing him too hard, which is really beautiful. It's really beautiful. And I think what it is, is it's actually, if you're looking at manipulation wise, it's actually the best way to ensure that he will do it because she's giving him the safety to be brave. Yeah. He's more likely to do it if he's not being overwhelmed and it's actually his choice. Yeah. So Phoebe needs to go and she thinks that she's going to have a Casablanca goodbye. Oh, she really does. She really wants it. And and Miles kind of gives it to her. Under the impression he's never going to see her again. So maybe that was sort of not the best choice of judgment, as we'll get to at the end. Miles really needed to think about how close Rochester actually is. Yeah. So like Bogey, you know, pretty much tells you in his line of work, uh, innocent people are going to get hurt. And uh, she she needs to go. But don't worry. It's It's all for her. And she goes, my dear, sweet, brave Miles. It's the most dramatic sacrifice. It is. And... He kisses her on the forehead, but she puts her hand on her eye. No, no, hmm? no he kisses her eyeball. Okay. It's so awkward. That's what I thought, because then she puts her hand on her eye. But then when yeah. I watched it a second time, I thought, wait, did he kiss her on the forehead? Maybe he was going for the forehead, but but I do love that she puts her hand on her I eye. Because, oh, she'll never, never forget where, oh. where he kissed her. Oh, it's... Yeah. But she goes, Miles... I could be the last woman you'll ever see. I love it when she goes, she goes, oh, it's better than I ever dreamed. Oh, sure. Her swoon is real. It's really real. And then Phoebe leaves our lives. Oh, Phoebe. Not forever, but she's gone. Phoebe, Phoebe, come back. Now, back in the bullpen, you know, Murphy needs more information. She wants to know if anyone approved the fighter jet plane. Miles can see that there's, you know, Air Force bigwigs and some guys from state. They have a command center in the control tower, but he can't get past the guards. And that's when Frank springs into action and gets on the extension. And Frank tells him that he needs to connect with the guy guarding the tower, you know, get his trust. If, if his family's from a small town, so is he. And if that doesn't work, he should bribe him. Uh, Jim gets on the line. He starts yelling ideas back and forth. And so you have Jim and Frank and, and Murphy, like we said, can just tell that this is not helpful for Miles. Mm-hmm. And makes them get off the phone. Frank and Jim are going now. They're very overwhelming, if well meant. <laughs> yeah, Frank and Jim have to go now, don't you, Frank and Jim? <laughs> and then they just realize what they're doing because they go, oh, you're doing a great job. And they hang up. You did a great job. And then Murphy gives him another chance to back out. This is a tough one, even for a seasoned reporter. Miles uh, says that he hears things around the office that people don't think that he's a real journalist. They think he's a pencil pusher. And he wants the story. He says, it's important to me. It's so beautiful. That little edit, that sort of surprised me. I wasn't expecting that. I had forgotten that. And it's such an important thing to add for a character. And it makes the story and his actions 
so much stronger. And I'm telling you, in the thing that this show does time and again, that is so wise, that is such a testament to this writing room, is that that little moment of, of true investment of, of sincerity and of just planting those personal stakes, mm-hmm. the last moments of this episode pay off in spades. Yeah. Because they've put the time into this relationship from, you know, basically from day one of the pilot with Murphy and Miles and how important her belief in him is and the way that she continues to reassess how how, how she sees him. And because they have laid the, the foundation for this, because they have given these characters and these relationships this long this long arc, that moment, we know how much that means. We know what he means when he talks about that yeah. because we have history with them already. And it, it builds on it. It's It becomes not just sort of a rehash of nowhere to run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Murphy tells him that he can do it, even though it's very obvious that no one thinks that he can do it. Yeah. Which is a really great contrast between wanting to encourage someone and the body language and the facial, mm-hmm. you know, faces of everyone. And then she'll talk to him on the air tonight. She gets on the phone and sort of just sits on her desk, really kind of throws herself down on the desk, really, with a sigh. And they all look really worried. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I am worried. (laughs) (laughs) I wish we could screen cap your face because you do look actually really worried. I was like, this is one of those episodes. I don't know why. I know what happens. And I spent the entire time in the throes of the stakes. (laughs) I just love it. So we cut to... Showtime. We're on the FYI set. We've got that classic bustle as everyone's around the desk and HMU or hair and makeup are are working on on Corky and Jim. And we have John giving the rundown about what's going to happen. We're going to start with Miles and Tobago. Then we're going to Frank at the Pentagon. We see that Frank's like on screen in the corner. Frank on screen in the corner of this section of this episode is my favorite little sidebar. It is my <laughs> what's favorite happening. little sidebar. And I didn't notice it as much until like the second or third time I watched but there's something at the end that we have oh, to talk about, yes. which I only noticed the last time I watched it. And I went, Frank, I... no, Frank, no, <laughs> Frank. It's the toupee, man. It's it's the piece. It, it brings something out in Frank. Uh, the tiger. So we're going to cut to Frank in the Pentagon. Then it's going to be Murphy Brown's taped interview with the State Department. And we're going to finish with Corky's piece. There's Jim at the desk. And Jim just goes, unbelievable. We still don't know how that pilot got those detonation codes. The public depends on us for facts, and yet minutes before we go on the air, we're struggling to pull information from a hundred places, our resources pushed to the limits. John. Yes, Jim? Does it get any better than this? I just... Jim is a hot-blooded, red-blooded man right now, and he is into these stakes. I love seeing what was like young Jim in the field. (laughs) He's so into this. This is what he went into journalism for. There's this lovely moment that is one of the things I love about this, this show. It's a little setup that you don't realize is a setup unless you're clued into what these writers and the directors do, which is John say, asking casually, did anyone get a picture of Miles to put up while he's on the phone? Corky's like, oh, I did. I found one in his office. It's said very lightly. But if you know this show, you're like, wait a second, as they just very quickly pan away from that little interchange. You know this is going to be bad. Mm-hmm. You know this is not a flattering picture of Miles. Particularly because it's quirky, who just has exactly no understanding of certain levels of things. Just almost like she has no peripheral vision. Bless her. Exactly. She it's, just it's well, and the thing is, is like she had the best of intentions. Corky went into his office and picked picked a picture that Miles has of himself in his office. On on paper, yeah. you're like, well, sure, those are pictures he's proud of. She didn't think of However, it as being anything inappropriate 
or no. um, showing him off in a certain light. It was just a picture of him. You know, Miles and the pictures that he would pride of himself and put in his office might not necessarily be the correct picture for this moment. Or what I was nervous about was that it would be a picture of himself from childhood that his mother had put in a frame and given to him to put on his desk. Like, so many options. Not to mention, you know, it's a high school. It's probably his high school, not even his college, right? Oh, it's definitely high school graduation. It also makes him look younger. It gives off exactly. the inexperience and it doesn't. It's not a great light. It, it It's not doing him any favors. No, it, it, it reminds me of when uh, Corky dressed Murphy at her... Uh, dream funeral exactly i wouldn't be caught dead in a dicky and now look dead in a dicky so we anxiously await to find out what that picture will be which we've slightly spoiled for you but then we turn to to murphy and she's on the phone with miles prepping him what i i also just want to sidebar that i absolutely want her teal jacket vest situation that's happening i think the vest might be suede and the jacket is a normal jacket material because there's a slight texture difference but i love it Anyway, so she asks, what else does he have? And he says, well, he's just gotten some info. I believe he says from the Defense Department and some quotes from locals. He doesn't think it feels like much. And then he gets kind of serious and goes, you would have gotten in that control tower, wouldn't you, Murphy? And she goes, well, that's me. And that's fine. Like, she's so... Yeah, she's so great in this episode. Oh, she's so kind to him. And she's like, sure, I probably would have. But that doesn't... Like, it's fine. You're not me. You're going to do great. It's so supportive. And at that moment... Corky comes around the desk and goes, is that Miles? Tell him our prayers are with him and that we're very proud of what he's doing to give the world its only close-up account of an event that could wreak environmental havoc and affect the course of world politics. And tell him that even if he gets nervous and blo- or blows it completely, we still love him. To which Murphy turns back to the phone and goes, Corky says hi. <laughs> I was really nervous and Miles heard that whole thing, yeah. so I'm really glad he didn't. At that moment, John yells, places, going live. We get what I think was is the the soundbite that you got for our intro, which is for your information tonight. You know, I, I don't. Jim's like, I don't remember, so I'll have to check that for everyone for the next episode. It's just such a clear cut that I feel like this might be it. Not that I used anything that I'm not supposed to use <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, so he says that it's something out of a movie, something experts said couldn't happen. He he preps us with all this like severity and gravitas. He says in an exclusive live report. Miles, our executive producer, talks to Murphy Brown, the only man on the ground at the scene. And Murphy does this great thing. She's sitting very serenely in a chair facing the lovely 1980s office phone and lobs him this very grave and lovely intro. And then right as Miles is starting to answer, we hear, please deposit an additional (laughs) $1.15. And he goes, wait, no, I don't have... And dial tone, we lose Miles. Because uh, let's remember, he was on a payphone this whole time. We cut to sometime later. Murphy is just staring at the phone in her chair, just like she was before. She probably hasn't moved this entire time. <laughs> nope. Demanding the phone to ring. I can make you ring. I can make you ring right now. Nothing happens. I can mm-hmm. make you ring right, right now. Nope. I can make you melt. And then it rings. And I... <laughs> I like to believe that she scared it. I, I do. I fully believe that Murphy Brown scared the phone into ringing. And it's Miles. She gets everyone's attention. Uh, we hear Miles, before you jump on me, I got beads up the wazoo, but no change. <laughs> but again, he didn't need money because he pays in... Don't they say that he pay, pays in, in beads? So there makes sense that I he wouldn't so. have money. Yeah. Because I'm assuming that he went to, like, an all-inclusive. No, I swear to God, he mentions in the episode that they pay with beads. 
No, I know. That's what I mean. I think that the beads are part of like being all inclusive. Oh, I thought it was the, so you think it's the package as opposed to the island. I wonder if that has something to do with it. Like it's like oh. a certain amount that you have. It can, I don't I've really, never I've been never been to, been to an all inclusive. I've, I've never been to any country, unfortunately, that has crystal clear waters. Oh, we should fix that. Yes. Well, you know, I'll start a GoFundMe. <laughs> Anyway, so Miles tried to call Collect, but there's no operator left in the island, so obviously he can't do that. And everyone's like, okay, okay, but but how are you calling now, Murphy asks. And Jim is listening right next to Murphy. Well, Miles saw a car phone in a Jeep, and he borrowed it. Mm-hmm. Miles stole a government-issued Jeep, guys. Miles is a badass. Yes, he is. And Murphy says, way to go, Miles. She is so proud of him. She's so proud. John, the stage manager, reminds everyone that they need to start. So he lets them know that they've hooked Miles up. They're ready to go live. Everyone runs their positions. And Murphy gives Miles this really great pep talk that she knows he can do it, that she's here to support him. John, the stage manager, says we're live. Jim introduces Miles. Miles is very poetic in his description. He describes the birds. It's beautiful. I love that we get a shot of like Frank listening at the Pentagon on the screen. Everyone's just transfixed. And pretty much Miles is now up to the plane. Everybody freaks. John thinks he's crazy. Murphy wants to know how he got there. He saw the Jeep. He got in it. I drove it real fast. (laughs) I drove it real fast. I love that at this moment I'm like, wow, Miles has changed. And then I drove it real fast. You're like, there he is. There's my buddy. He's so trying to be tough. But he can't. Because he's still a kid. Yeah. I saw a Jeep. I got into it. I drove it real fast. <laughs> and then Murphy just smiles with so much pride. Oh, she's so proud of him. She's so proud of him. It's, she's almost weepy. <laughs> Jim cannot contain his excitement. Uh, Miles describes he's at the jet. He holds up his press pass. So pretty much it's like Miles is on radio. Mm-hmm. He's describing all, his, all of his actions because we can't see him, which I'm sure has to do with budget. And also the fact, oh yeah, this is a show that does not do location that often. I mean, we did it the one well, time. I, I would say like we did location with Jim and Anchors Away, but part of that was watching the tension mm-hmm. and that helped to like see the potential danger that Jim was in. This one, hearing it like they are is the correct type of tension. I think yeah. seeing it would have become a production, whereas hearing it, you're in the same place that they are being like, oh no. Yeah, it puts us no, in no. the point of view of the FYIers and the viewing exactly. audience as opposed to mm-hmm. where there were cameras where Jim was. Also, did did I notice a female camera operator or is there someone standing behind I someone? Tell. I have the same question. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I'm not I sure if she's just tell. standing so close to the camera that it looks like it. Yeah. Anyway, everyone. I want to believe there's a female camera. Great. That John would employ a female camera. I agree. Now, everyone is on the edge of their seats in their own way. You know, Corky is just terrified. <laughs> Poor Corky. Miles describes how the hatch opens. Murphy reminds Miles that as a good journalist, Sometimes these people aren't in the mood to talk. No. She's really scared for him. Uh, Miles gets his attention. uh, And then he speaks. He doesn't know how else to get his wife's attention. Also, he has a very thick Southern accent. He is a stereotypical cowboy. He doesn't know how to get his wife's attention ever since she moved out. She won't take his calls or answer my letters. He sent her flowers. Corky pretty much rolls her eyes and says, big deal. I love corking. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. Like a man thinks that flowers is going to fix everything. She's like cute. Uh, And all he wants her to do is talk to him before leaving him. You know, it's very, it's very human. You know, I, I think there are other things that he could do to get her attention than stealing some more heads. But you know, you know, and that's all he has to say for now. Miles again gets poetic. A man who loves his wife. 
I guess this story isn't as complicated. He's so beautiful. And then Murphy throws it to Jim. We'll find out later. Miles probably didn't hear that part that Mm. she threw it to Jim. He's still thinks he's on camera. And then what I love is we get, we find out is the title of this special. <laughs> it's uh, my favorite. From, uh, from Jim, which is, we will continue with the special edition of FYI, Tobago, Time Bomb of Terror. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. I want to make the like poster for that. <laughs> yes, maybe it should be uh, like a sticker, Time Bomb yep. of Terror. Time Bomb of Terror. It's just so, so typical of getting people's attention. It is the clickbait mm-hmm. of its time. It's like, oh, that's going to be a good story. John calls to commercial. The gang all hug. They congratulate themselves. But again, Miles has no idea that he's no longer on (laughs) camera. And he describes the scene like he's Hemingway. I love that he just becomes like the sound, the score to as an outro to this moment. Yeah, it's uh, he's just scoring the scene. And I wish that I could have transcribed it, but I'm finding it so hard without closed caption to transcribe everything. We don't have the scripts for every episode. So I'm sorry, guys. I don't have exactly what he said. It's a whole monologue. It's really beautiful. It's very beautiful. I'll be honest. I tried, but I was so distracted by Frank make out attacking a woman at the Pentagon. Yes, let's talk about Frank and how uh, Frank might... uh, Me too, Frank? Uh, You better get Uh, rid of the footage, Frank, because someone's going to sue you. Frank, that toupee... Made him a little too cocky. <laughs> well, first of all, Frank does a really funny little like dance. So he's he's in a, a television, you know, um, off camera. I'm sure they were going to go to him for special reports. Mm-hmm. I just don't. <laughs> I'm just so sad. So Frank, it's so excited that they did so well that not only does he do like a dance, but he grabs a passing woman, <laughs> tries to hug dance and then kiss her like it's the end of world war ii which also was not a good thing to do uh and kisses her like throws her not throws her but you know like 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 the i don't know how to describe it but it's like the nurse and the guy and the sailor sailor from world war ii where he's which was not a romantic moment for the woman in that historical photo no even more so in motion because she does not like it and he kisses her and then she throws down her papers and walks off disgusted at least yep. she didn't like pretend to like it but oh my god frank not yeah, appropriate and he just, like joyously comes back and is dancing for the camera and we get a close-up on his hair uh but an example of how back then that was not considered assault well and that's the thing so this is something that you know we we talk about a lot but i just want to remind you know we talk about the show both in its original context and its current context exactly if that happened on the on you know season 12 on season 11 on you know the current revival i would have a very different opinion of this moment agreed because it's not okay now and it's i don't think it's a joke that they would make now no like, i, think I they, do not it's it's just not something they would then it was a different time it was a different story i am not here to vilify frank um because of that because i see it in the context and i know that the the innocent joke that was meant by it but i am going to say as a woman of today not okay, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and me too. Same. No, no. I'm trying to be funny about it. I'm trying to make oh, it in yeah. context. So I'm, yeah, I'm with you too. So hopefully no one thinks that we are, are vilifying Frank. I am not here to condone his actions, nor damn them. We are watching a lovely show in context in a moment that was not mm-hmm. intended to be as such and was not taken as such at the time. Exactly. And it's interesting. You do that nowadays, I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to it. I think it's interesting that mm-hmm. so much has changed for the better in a relatively short amount of time in the context of the time of history, 
where mm-hmm. mo- most things change. If you go, you know, all the way back to Margaret Sanger and beyond, right? Mm-hmm. So I wrote that Frank struts, and then I wrote personal space, dude. Did? Uh, but yes. I, I will agree with you. I am very thankful and appreciative that I am, while we have a lot of work to continue doing, I am very grateful that I was raised and in my 30s at a time where something like that happens and I can call it out and I can stand up for myself and that I have more of an opportunity to stop someone than just walk away and have to shrug it off. Um, so I love seeing stuff like that. I mean, like, wow, that was okay then. It isn't now. Progress. We have made progress and that's really cool. But I also want to point out that it's not like in the show, the woman's like, oh my God, like she didn't want it and she got upset when yeah. she walked away and it's all real. So I think that's important to say, too, that, you know, that that was shown in the episode that the woman did not think it was a good thing for Frank to do either. The woman did not. She took herself out of it. You go, girl. She even kind of shoved him. So like, you go, girl. I also appreciate that you can kind of see the security guys at the Pentagon kind of be like, dude. Oh, really? Okay, good. Okay, good. They kind of step in like they might have to do something. And then he just dances back to the camera. So like, kudos to everyone. It it was a it was a well done, harmless joke that now I don't think we could do. But in the context, it was fun. But we love Frank. So we cut to the day after, and we're in the bullpen. And the gang is, minus Miles, is sitting at the table. And Jim is lamenting that he hates the day after a big story. It's such a letdown. The rush of adrenaline gone. You, your step slower. And Frank just looks at him and goes, face it, a madman with a warhead can really spoil you. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's a real true thing. Adrenaline, the drop mm-hmm. of adrenaline is really hard to deal with it's such a oh yeah it's a high and then all of a sudden it's gone it can be actually quite depressing well and I think that's part of the excitement and what we see everyone launch into when this happens is like that type of story doesn't happen that often so it's amazing being in it. it's stressful being in it you do it it's a success you killed it and then you sit around and kind of wait for the next one and try to find the next one you're constantly chasing that high of that story of that mm-hmm. finger on the pulse so at that moment from uh, from the right appears the secretary again just as slow as she was before, drops something on the table and tells Murphy that she's back with that copied article on the jet she asked for, (laughs) to which Murphy slams her head on the table. (laughs) She's finally back with the F-15 report right on time. And at that moment, Miles enters from the elevator. And what I love is the first thing that's said is Jim goes, all hail the conquering hero. Mm. He's so proud. And they all kind of swarm him. Murphy actually stays back by by the table, but everyone else swarms him and, you know, congratulate him. They're so proud of him. And Miles you know, is talking to, to Frank and he says, yeah, once I started talking to him, I felt confident he'd surrender. I wasn't afraid. And I love Jim's kind of over his shoulder, just looking so proud. And Frank goes, hell, he could have fried you. You could be radioactive dust contaminating someone's drinking water right now. <laughs> and you see Miles just kind of take that in. And Frank says, you know, I've been in situations that were half as bad as that. And I was afraid. Oh, they're so they're being great. They're being so great, and they're so impressed and proud of him. And and Miles goes, great, because I was scared out of my mind. My legs felt like rubbers. I was sweating everywhere. My stomach was cramping up. And Frank interrupts him with, Miles, have some pride. <laughs> he has a limit. Miles gets himself together and just says it was really helpful knowing that they were all back there supporting him. And I think that's a huge testament to the way Murphy talked to him to the way she stepped in, the way she took care of him, knowing the doubts, and with Miles definitely knowing the doubts everyone had, but encouraging him in a way that actually helped him continue and gave him the bravery to do what he did. At that moment, they kind of part, and he walks over to Murphy at the table. Murphy congratulates him and says that she knew he could do it. 
And she starts to walk away and she stops and turns around and says, wait a minute, it's not true. I didn't think you could do it, Miles. I didn't think you had it in you. I was wrong. You were really great out there. Really great. And his face, it's, it, it's just volumes. Like he does, they don't say anything for a second as she just looks proudly and you see how much those words mean to him. It's just, it's so full of all the history we've seen so far in only a season and a couple episodes. It's so beautiful. And he says, right now, I feel like I could do anything. And she smiles and walks away and we're, you know, standing there with this beautiful face and he faces, you know, quote unquote, downstage and the elevator opens and you hear the audience react before you see who it is because this person is short of stature and hiding behind a couple things and then appears over his shoulder and there's Phoebe Kramer. She doesn't say anything. She sings what was clearly their sing-along song, to which I will not sing, but I will say it's Yellow Bird, High Up in Banana Tree, and as it fades out, and his face utterly changes to fear and horror, Yellow Bird, you sit all alone like me. Oh, she's adorable. I love her. I think she thought she found her Yellow Bird. And she, I mean, Miles does like the adorable kind. He does. But I guess she liked him a little too much. I think she liked him a little too quickly. <laughs> yes, which can be scary for anyone. Sure. Oh, Miles. Oh, so quickly, we did look to see if there was precedent for the situation with the someone stealing a fighter jet. There were several things throughout history that are um, not so fun to talk about from uh, both our country and Russia that don't end so well. But there was f- one fun story that I wanted to talk about, which is from July 4th, 1986, And it is an article from Foxtrot Alpha, but it is the tale of when a marine mechanic stole an A4 Skyhawk for a joyride over California. And it's a really funny story about a 21-year-old Lance Corporal named Howard A. A. Foote Jr. who climbed into the cockpit of a Skyhawk, started up, and took off just to say he he flew it. Now, essentially, the reason he did that uh, was not because he wanted to get the attention of a you know an estranged lover, but it was because he was he had a really promising career ahead of him, and just months prior to this situation, he had tried to set a glider altitude record that resulted in an aerial embolism, and he was told he'd never fly again for the military. So what he did was he decided he was going to become a fast jet pilot on his own terms, climbed into a Skyhawk, and took it for a joyride. Nothing bad happened. He. He flew around for a while. He came back down after about four attempts to land. He says, I was given a job to do. My job was to break records. Well, I went out and broke records and got hurt doing it. But when I needed a helping hand, none of the people in command would come forward and get me a medical waiver so that I could fly jets. And he felt really let down. So he just did what he had to do. He got to fly it once and only once. They dropped charges, but he received four and a half months already served in the brig. And what I love this quote, an other than honorable discharge from the Marine Corps. It's unfortunate because he had a, everyone in this article says he had a really promising career and pretty much tanked it. But I do like that this was right, you know, only a couple years before this happened. I like to think that this joyride is what resulted in Glenn Dixon taking off with the nuclear warheads. (laughs) Yeah, he, he decided that he needed to take it a step further. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to get attention, that's that's one option. So the secretary is played by character actress Patty Edwards, who passed away in 1999. 
But as I alluded before, many of you may know her from your childhood. Now, she was born in Bristol, England. And I'm not honestly sure if that's an accent she's putting on for the show and she has a British accent, or mm. it's like John Mahoney where... Uh, came over when they were pretty young or got rid of it. I think John Mahoney was like a teenager. Yeah, he was no, 18. Or like early tw- 18, yeah. He was 18 and when he, he moved over. But still, an age where people don't lose their accents but decided to lose his accent. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> I find that interesting. Mm-hmm. She was in The Little Mermaid, Hercules, Hercules the TV series. Like Worked did. a lot for Disney. The Brave Little Toaster. I love that movie. It's such a great movie. Uh, So just take a look at our IMDb and you will recognize her from so many amazing things. She had a really illustrious career in voiceover as well as in television and really a secretary that I think you will not forget very quickly. Hey, Jesse. Yo. What should the people do when they're not listening to the podcast? Oh, you know what? You should interact with us on social media. I don't know if you know this, but we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The handle is the same on all three. It's Murphy Brown Pod. The website itself is murphybrownpod.com. And our email, if you want to get, you know, just like get really in conversation with us, is murphybrownpod at gmail.com. And Jesse, aren't there two ways that they can donate? Yes, actually. So you could do a one-time donation. It's just a lump sum of whatever you'd like to contribute, and we're super thankful for it. However, you could also become a monthly contributor. So you could do over smaller increments over a period of time. So every month we just take out whatever you commit to, or you can do a one-time donation, whatever fits your budget. MurphyBrownPod.com slash donate. And we have some really cool swag that goes with the Patreon. You can get cool stickers that we've made with quotes from the show, quotes from the podcast, as well as uh, any extra tidbits that we think might be interesting We that we've cut from the episode for time, we will be putting on the Patreon. And that includes interviews coming up, hopefully if we are able to get more studio space, we can do some special episodes for the Patreon. This is really how you can help us if you love the podcast. And we'll see you soon for another edition of FYI. The Murphy Brown Podcast. Phoebe, come back. <laughs>